This morning's scripture is from Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's word. Well, good morning, First of Anne. Happy Palm Sunday to you. It's a joy to be here. Along with my wife, Shanna, up front, and three of my kids, James, Gabe, and Kyle, I told the first service we'd be praying for Grady. This is his first step into manhood today, as he is dropped off in the nursery. And it sounds like the prayers were answered, as he's still back there, and the rest of us are in here. So, we are grateful uh, to be here. Uh, it's certainly fun to have my family join us at a church that we love. I've said several times that my beautiful wife walked down that aisle to me eight years ago now, a little over eight years ago now. So we've always loved First of Ann and Cole and Lynn are obviously dear friends of ours. And it's fun to do Palm Sunday with you, though I'll admit the preaching on Palm Sunday, in some ways, it's not always an exciting task. Simply put, if you're familiar with the Bible, and if you're here today and not, I apologize that I'm your introduction to it, but uh, if you are then you've heard the story. There there are only so many ways you can cover the logistics of Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem, which is a lot of what Palm Sunday is about, the king coming in to the city. And yet, you think about the implications of Palm Sunday and the week that follow, which will be the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, And you think about the weight of the Gospels and the percentage of the material just on that last week. You know, half of the Gospel of John covers the last week of Jesus' life. And so this, the magnitude and everything that would follow is made clear to us just by the weight of Scriptures given to it. So to set the stage historically that this is the week of Passover. One of three times that a Jewish person within a certain radius of Jerusalem was mandated to return to the city, to pilgrimage to the city in uh, in order to celebrate, to to, uh, participate in these festivals of worship. And Passover was kind of the ultimate one, right? Drawing their minds all the way back to Egypt when God would lead his people out of Egypt through the great exodus, releasing them from their slavery, which the New Testament corollary is Christ, our Passover lamb setting us free from our slavery to sin and to death. Now, this being the occasion, a lot of scholarship estimates that there are some two million people crammed into Jerusalem and the surrounding area. 
But this year wasn't like any other year. This year, there was a buzz in the crowd. There was this electricity, this anticipation. By this point, the news of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has spread. They know of his miracles, his teachings. They know all the ways that he's rebuked and poked their established religious leadership. And they are waiting and anticipating. Is he going to come? Is he not going to come? What adds to it is, if you could imagine, first century Jerusalem filled with light posts. On every single one, there would have been a stapled poster that said, wanted, with Jesus' picture on it. To set the stage leading up a little bit, John 11 reads like this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And now don't miss these next two parts. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he come to the festival at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So they were waiting. The people were waiting. The authorities were waiting. The wanted posters were waiting. In fact, one Jewish historian says that Jesus of Nazareth riding into Jerusalem in this moment with all of those people, with all that anticipation, may be the single most courageous act by a Jewish man in all of human history. And he comes, not secretly, not at night. He comes in the middle of the day. But not only does he come, the manner by which he comes is important. So this detail of Christ riding in on a donkey, he wasn't simply after the most accessible form of transportation. He wasn't just locating uh, what was easiest, what maybe was most docile, right? A donkey wasn't first century Uber, that this was strategic, intentional. For he sends his disciples out, verse, verse 2, go to the village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. He'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what the prophet spoke. So there are a couple of reasons why the donkey's important. I mean, the first one is prophetic fulfillment and self-revelation. So when Jesus sends the disciples and he says, find a donkey, he's proclaiming something in that. He's revealing something about himself. Why choose the donkey, Jesus? Why not just walk in? Why not a bit of a more noble animal? Why not a chariot? Because it is only through a donkey that Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 comes true. So when Jesus says, go get the donkey, he says, I am your king. And I am proclaiming it publicly. And as is the case with Scripture, every detail inspired, every detail important. The choice of the donkey is prophetic fulfillment and self-revelation. I am king. Now that came home to the first century uh, probably a little bit easier than it does to us. 
right? Because I don't know everyone's story, but I would say most of us, most of us here have not grown up in the environment of a monarchy that's foreign to us. I know some of you think you're part of the royal family and you watch all this stuff, but it's foreign to us. We're familiar with presidents, senators, elected officials. But Jesus rides in as king. And there's a word in that for us. Probably the simplest way to put it is, don't treat Jesus like a president. He does not come to authority by the permission of the electoral college. He is king by divine decree. He does not need our vote to rule over our lives. Now here's the word of caution for me and for you. A lot of us treat him like he's a president. I vote yes, Jesus, you can have these areas of my life, but over here, I vote no. And that does not work for a king. Amen? He has not asked for our approval. He has asked for our allegiance. And he rides in on the donkey as king. As king. But there's another thing into this as well. We did some historical work earlier. We'll do a little bit more now. That when a king came into a city, first century considered, there were probably multiple ways to do it, but there were really only two. There were really only two that, that were common, that, that were actually available in any normal sense of the word. The first was a donkey. So kings could and would ride in on a donkey. You'll see an Old Testament example of this. They can ride in on a donkey or they can ride in on a horse, a stallion. Their choice of transportation is significant because it communicates the purpose of their coming. Now, what we mean by that, well, culturally considered, if a king comes into your city on a horse, it means war. It means I've come to crush my enemies. If a king came into a city on a donkey, it meant peace. Don't be afraid. I am offering peaceful reconciliation. So when he comes in, he's not only fulfilling prophecy, but he is offering peace. Preeminently peace between humanity and God. Sinners and the Holy One. But in a twist of irony in the story that Jesus can't simply offer peace with no shedding of blood. Because not only is Jerusalem during this time full of millions of people, scholarship also estimates that during the week of Passover, there were hundreds of thousands of lambs that would be slaughtered as part of observing this festival of worship. And Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So when the king rides in on a donkey, he actually also comes in as a lamb being led to the slaughter. How can we have peace by God? By being washed by the blood of Christ. Jesus, King Jesus, 
rides in on a donkey. And as we will note later, there is a day coming when he will ride in on a horse. That's significant. So he rides in on a donkey proclaiming peace. Could have ridden in on a horse, which would have proclaimed war. Now, to step outside of the text, step into our world just for a moment. And this last year, I think we all could say, has been a bit combative. Right? You smirk her and laugh because you know it's true. We hate the mask, we love the mask. We believe in COVID, we don't believe in COVID. We like the president, we hate the president. We used to like each other, we don't like each other. It has been angry, combative, polarizing. Because I think the reality is most of us decided to saddle up our horses and charge into war when we should have been taking off our coats and putting them on our donkeys. We should ride for peace. Carrying the message of the peace of the goodness and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19, he's coming on a horse so we don't have to. And for some of us, it might be time to unsaddle our horses and put some coats on our donkeys. The Christian carries the message and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We plead for reconciliation to a lost and dying world. And when Jesus puts the coats on his donkey and rides to Jerusalem, well, we don't get in Matthew. Okay, so if you only read Matthew, you don't get the full picture of Palm Sunday. You get a snippet. You got to go to Mark, Luke, John. Well, Luke tells us a little detail in Luke that we don't get here is Jesus is riding into the city and he actually stops. He pauses and he weeps. Because when you ride the donkey longing for peace, you weep for those that only want war. And he weeps, not because he's going to die, because he knows one day they will. And he weeps, not because he didn't want their hearts, but because they rejected his. So he stops and he weeps. And I think there's a link there. And I think the degree to which I look, and I'm not immune to the struggle, but the degree to which I am moved to sorrow over not just our cultural situations, but our church situations. When I'm not moved to sorrow, it means I'm probably not trying to ride a donkey. And he weeps. And he rides. And he enters the city to the shouts of 
Hosanna, Hosanna. So they cut the palm branches, they take off the cloaks, which you can read when Jehu, Old Testament king, was anointed, they put the cloaks down. So this is a normal reaction to receiving a king. So the coats are down, the tunics are down, the palm trees are cut. He rides in the city, Hosanna, Hosanna, which you can make a note, Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. And so what would happen, the three times a year they traveled to Jerusalem, they would come singing. This is one of the psalms they'd sing. Hosanna, Hosanna, meaning save us. Save us, Jesus. Glory to God in the highest. Hosanna. And as the other gospel accounts would tell us, Jesus does not refuse their praise. When he's confronted about their praise, what's that? Do, you, do you hear what they're saying about you? He says, yes, I hear it. And if they stop, the rocks are going to sing. Hosanna, save us, save us. Because if you've heard Palm Sunday sermons before, and I'm not denigrating this, it's, it's, I think, effective preaching, that there's sometimes a point made here between the shouts of the people, right? So the shouts of Hosanna on Sunday, you kind of time travel a little bit, that the shouts of Hosanna on Sunday go to crucify him on Friday, and that's a stark shift. We should make note of that. How fickle our hearts can be when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. Sunday was worship. Friday was crucify him. Why? Well, for that segment of the crowd, Jesus didn't wind up looking like they want him to. He didn't wind up doing what, he wanted, uh, what they wanted him to do. And so Hosanna turns to crucify him. All right, keep watch over the fickle nature of our hearts. But what might be missed in that is the crowds in the story, right in the timeline of that last week of Jesus' life, there, isn't, or there aren't only two episodes of shouting. There are actually three. Okay, so do they shout Hosanna on Sunday? Yes. Do they shout crucify him on Friday? Yes. But they actually shout one other thing. Because if you're not familiar with the story, 30,000 foot overview, Jesus is arrested and, and sent uh, to a man named Pilate. Pilate's kind of the ruling Roman official over the area. What many of us may not know is Pilate is on thin ice with Rome. Right? So for whatever reason, he drew the short straw. He's got Judea. And it is a turbulent area. And Rome's told Pilate at this point... Anything else happens, any other disturbance, any word that gets back to us that you can't control this area underneath your purview, Pilate, you're out. And when the Romans fired you, there isn't a lot of severance. It is out. That's the severance. You're done. And so now Pilate is stuck in a pretty tight spot. I've got this man, Jesus, who admittedly, Pilate says, I think he's innocent. I can find no wrongdoing with him. But I've also got this mob. And I've got to appease them to save my job. So here's his plan. He goes to the mob and says, hey, there's a custom I have. 
that on Passover that I release to you a prisoner of your choosing. And I've got two. Here's Jesus, which by the way, I think he's innocent. But there's another guy, and I've had him locked up for a while, named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was guilty of, most likely, sedition, leading an uprising against Rome. Romans don't take that too kindly. In fact, if we were to modernize it a little bit, we'd say Barabbas was, very literally, sitting on death row. So what's the third shout? Well, Pilate says, pick. And what does the crowd do? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Now, why would we talk about that this morning? Well, admittedly, this next part is a little bit of conjecture. But picture this with me. I think there's a really good chance Barabbas is the first person in all of human history to really understand the implications of the gospel. Because what some scholars will say is, most likely being jailed for sedition, sitting on death row, the third cross on Calvary's hill was meant for him. He was headed to execution. And so when he gets set free, and hours later, he's watching Jesus, presumably, carry that crossbeam through the crowd. And he sees Jesus nailed to the cross more than anyone else. Barabbas can sit there and say, that should be me. He is dying in my place. I was guilty, but because of an innocent man, I was set free. Do you see it? That when Barabbas really takes in what just happened, every foundational truth of the gospel is experienced by him in tangible real time. And what's true of him is true of us. We are guilty before God. But only because of an innocent man can we go free. And what did Barabbas do? Nothing. What did he contribute to the work? Nothing. And when Jesus' blood is shed... And Barabbas goes, that was actually my penalty. Very literally, we know we should suffer that penalty as well. But because Jesus' blood flowed, ours doesn't have to. If we would but respond to repentance, or with repentance and faith in the work of Christ. Give us Barabbas. But when one singular man sets the guilty free and dies in their place, that's called the gospel. That is good news. And that's how the king on the donkey rides in bringing peace. 
Okay, so he gets the donkey, he rides in, it's prophetic fulfillment, he brings peace to the people. The people are kind of known and betrayed by their different shouts, one of which is give us Barabbas, which, which captures the gospel for us in all of its clarity. But what next? So what happens after Jesus rides in? If you read Matthew, what you'll read is, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought there. So if we stick here, if I were to ask you, okay, so what happened immediately after Jesus rode into the city, you'd respond with, well, he walked into the temple and he started cleansing it out. The problem is that's not factually true. Now, did Jesus cleanse the temple after walking or riding into Jerusalem? Yes. So Matthew is correct. But Matthew is not concerned with filling in every gap of chronology. Matthew's a thematic writer. So is what he said true? Yes, but it does not happen with the immediacy that Matthew reads. You have to go to Mark. Okay, so Mark chapter 11, Jesus does enter and he does go in the temple. But when he goes into the temple, he looks around at everything and it being late, leaves and goes to Bethany. The next day Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple. Well, Jamie, what's the point? Well, I think the point is this. Jesus rides in and he goes into the temple and you can imagine he just sort of stands there and he's surveying the situation. This place that he says, my father's house is meant to be a house of prayer intimate connection with God, uninhibited worship. And he takes in what's going on. He's going, okay, all right. It's late. A lot of people are already going home. I see the problem. And tomorrow I'm going to come deal with it. There's time there for consideration. Okay, what's happening? How do we get rid of it? What are the barriers to worship that need to be eliminated? Goes home, sleeps, comes back the next day and takes care of business. First of all, I say this to myself as well. Lord willing, tomorrow, Monday is coming. And between now and then, there is some time for consideration. That as Jesus surveyed that temple, that we'd take some time this afternoon and this evening to survey our lives. And when Jesus returned to that temple, he started cleaning out every barrier to worship. And the invitation is for us to do the same as well. That this evening, tomorrow morning, that we would ask the Spirit to search us. Spirit, what are the barriers to my intimacy with Christ right now? If you don't know the Lord, what are your barriers to believing upon him? Search me. There's time for consideration, deep, thoughtful, spirit-invited consideration. You know, what is it? What are the, what's inhibiting us? 
from fully giving ourselves over to the king? Are we just so angry about something that we're blinded to the Lord? Are we so fearful over our lack of control that, that we're such warriors that we can't hear the sound of his voice? What is it for you? Do we worship and love our own lifestyle so much that we'll block God out lest he threaten it? Whatever it may be, there's time for consideration to as Jesus walks into the temple and surveys that we'd ask the Spirit to do the same thing. And in his goodness that we would hopefully sit back and watch him start to just get that stuff out of us. So that that relational intimacy would be near again. I think that's his invitation to all of us. And so I hope this morning we go and have gone a little bit beneath the logistics, so the logistics are important, because we do serve a king that rode in on a donkey. And he did offer peace. And he shed his blood to procure it, the innocent for the guilty. But just like this generation is buzzing for the Messiah's coming, we should be as well, for he is coming again. In the first century A.D., he rode in on a donkey, and in Revelation 19, he's riding in on a horse. And he's carrying a sword, and he has tattoos. Now, you got to deal with that, all right? It says righteousness is written on his thigh, and he is coming, and he's coming on a horse, and he is coming to crush his enemies, but not yet. And first of all, I would tell you like I tell myself, he is coming on the horse so we don't have to. So let's unsaddle our horses, let's put coats on our donkeys, and let's ride into our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our churches, and our communities as those who bear the gospel of peace. For blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called children of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. I certainly hope we did justice to your word. That you get glory and honor. God, we pray just for your spirit to help us. Beginning with me. Because in all the ways I just want to go to war against people. Would you help me bring the gospel of peace and reconciliation between humanity and God. God, that I would remember that just like Barabbas, I'm guilty before you until the innocent Savior sets me free. And Father, I ask for myself and everyone here that the times between now and tomorrow that we would find a chance, that we would make a chance, create a chance to let the Spirit survey our life as Jesus did the temple. 
in hopeful expectation that he will come in and clean out the things that inhibit our worship of you. So that end we pray and we thank you in Christ's name, amen.